Hi everybody, the name's Sergeant, Alex Sergeant, and welcome to this very special edition of the Fantasy Animation Podcast, where we'll be discussing and ranking the 24 James Bond opening title sequences. So expect plenty of discussion of all things fantastical in the James Bond franchise, as well as in the opening title sequences, and, and all the use of animation, VFX, and the other means in which the stylized opening numbers have attracted us and repelled us from some of Bond's more problematic elements. We recorded this in lockdown. Um, it's a sort of lockdown special, um, and as such, it has a certain lockdown flavor in that we really enjoyed doing it, um, and thus took our time in doing it. So we had a lot of... Um, audio to share with you so we thought it probably best to split it into two parts so do consider this one episode but you're currently listening to part one which will cover the first half of the rankings um, and then part two will cover the second half of the rankings and reveal our favorite James Bond opening title sequence so if you just want to skip to that one you're welcome to but I would recommend you listen to all of them this is one episode you can consider it as one episode Um, it's very much like Kill Bill I guess or um uh, in many ways, it's like Casino Royale and Quantum. The debate is out and will rage forever as to whether the film should be viewed together or separately. Um, but uh, do set back, enjoy the show. We've got a very special guest uh, for you as well. Um, and do enjoy uh, our rankings of the James Bond title sequence with apologies for all things fandom related because it's going to come across that perhaps some of our critical distance that we like to keep in some other episodes is very much lacking from this one. We try to tackle some of the issues surrounding the franchise, Um, hopefully we do, um, but the conversation will of course keep flowing and you can follow us on social media at FananimResearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research, um, to take part in the conversations and also you can contact us at fantasy-animation.org. Otherwise, do sit back and enjoy the show. Hi listeners and welcome to the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me Chris Holiday and me Alex Sargent. So for this episode we're going to go off-road taking on not one film but 24 as we look at the Bond credit sequences of the official Eon James Bond film franchise. Uh, we thought it was going to be 25 but with the continued delay uh, with the release of the next film in the series and Daniel Craig's last No Time to Die we felt that 2020 deserved something vaguely Bond related. Uh, Now, for me, these uh, credit sequences are essentially short animated films, rife with visual effects and animated imagery. Alex, fantasy, what are these sequences doing? Well, they're they're fantastical representations of many of the issues at stake within the Bond franchise. So many of the the, um, title sequences are um, as much about imperialism and gender and sexuality and all the things we sort of love and hate about Bond distilled into their sort of purest abstract form. So they're really fascinating to explore from the sort of fantasy angle as well. Absolutely. And it won't just be us. Uh, We are absolutely delighted, uh, thrilled, delete is applicable, um, to be joined by Dr. Ed Lamberti, who is an independent researcher in film studies. Uh, He's been a teaching assistant at King's College London and a screenwriting mentor at the London Film School. Um, He's published uh, across all range of of film and media studies. He's published a book, uh, Performing Ethics Through Film Style, which discusses the ethics of Emmanuel Levinas alongside film directors, uh, the Dardenne brothers, Barbe Schroeder and Paul Schrader. Uh, And recently, he was assistant editor on the collection VF Perkins on Movies, collected shorter film criticism published earlier this month uh, and edited by Douglas Pye. Uh, He's also the policy manager at the BBFC. And today he's speaking in his academic capacity and also in his uh, academic capacity as our dear friend friend and Bond fanatic. So Ed, thank you very much for joining us on this very special podcast. 
Chris and Alex, thank you very much indeed for having me. I'm really bowled over to be invited on and it's always great to talk about Bond and especially with the two of you. Yeah, so this is going to be a strange one because it's, it's essentially recording or, or kind of documenting a conversation or a series of conversations that I feel like we've had at every meal and, and get together and, and pub visit that we've ever had uh, as a kind of a threesome. And I just, I, I, there's so many things that I want us to talk about and hopefully that we'll kind of get to as we as we move through the credit sequence. Um, we've had a little bit of a play with ranking them. Uh, we've we've sort of uh, flagged up our own choices, our own favourites. There's going to be some controversy. So this could this could be a long one, Alex. This could be a long one. Oh, uh, you know, we're in lockdown. I've made myself uh, a black velvet in uh, honor of Scaramanga from Man with the Golden Gun. I say, I say, you know, let's let, we have all the time in the world. Um, let's let's, <laughs> Beautiful. let's do it. Um, so, I guess uh, should we start by sort of defining, you know, for those who are either sort of never watched a James Bond movie or have seen a couple but don't quite get it, what the significance of the sort of title sequence is to the franchise and. Um, and what interesting things we might be able to talk about them as we go through a sort of ranking of all of them. I should say, basically, we've all three of us have ranked them, and then I've spent the morning doing some maths, and I'm going to present our accumulated mass uh, ranking from from least favourite to best. Um, but yeah, the title sequence. Um, Ed, do you want to start us off? What does the title sequence... Well, first of all, what does the title sequence mean to you? Do you want to tell the listeners about sort of your relationship to the Bond franchise and what do you think the title sequence means to the Bond franchise as, as an entity? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, yeah, okay. I'll just say very, very briefly then about what, what sort of Bond means to me in general. Um, I sort of feel like Bond's just... I, I can't really remember a time that I didn't know Bond. I can remember one Christmas day I'd been given some Lego and I was some Lego train set. And as I was sitting on the floor of the bedroom constructing it, I just know somehow that there was a Bond film on TV, going to be on TV that afternoon. And this means that my family were talking about it. Let's make sure we don't miss blah, blah, blah. I think it was either from Russia with Love or Goldfinger, but I really don't know. This would have been when I was very, very young, probably four or five years old. And so I've just, you know, my family loved Bond. I've just grew up with Bond films in the house and I've always loved the Bond films. Um, at, you know, as I sort of then, you know, became a film studies sort of scholar and that, and, uh, you know, one of the things, one of the kind of additional things that interests me about Bond is its kind of status within sort of the scholarly discourse and, and, and you know, the, the, the ways in which Bond can be talked about within the discipline. And I think, you know, for a long time, it's been the case, I think, possibly for a lot of Bond fans that, that we sort of feel as though the Bond films kind of can't really be talked about. They can be enjoyed but maybe they can't be taken seriously. And I think something that's really, really interesting about a lot of the excellent Bond scholarship that's that's been coming out over the last few years, for a long time, but but more and more, I think, um, as in, in recent years, is that people are taking it seriously enough to be publishing on it and writing really sort of in-depth analyses of it. But at the same time, I think it's important not to over-egg the pudding with Bond. You know, they are Bond films. I think one of the things I like about them is that they don't have the burden of being masterpieces that we have to kind of bow down before that, that I can almost kind of relax when I'm engaging with a Bond movie because I don't have to sort of strain to enjoy it and to see great things in it but I think that but at the same time I think it's really important to to talk about them for what they are the good and the bad as you say you know as you say some of the things that we like about them some things we hate about them um and so I just really like to be with Bond films as a viewer and and as a film studies thinker as well 
Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think for us it's sort of interesting because we all have perhaps our primary, once primary is perhaps not the right word, but sort of dominant, I think, academic identities. And in many ways, the Bond franchise is our secret identity. That's that's our secret identity. We we sort of, I deal with animation, but I've also written and published on the Bond movies. I know Alex is the same. We've um, we published in the same pieces in the same Bond collection. Uh, so our Alex is a sort of primary uh, a fantasy film theorist and, and scholar and, and, and everything. There's also his relationship to the bomb franchise and i know it's the same with you you know that you deal with with film style and and um certainly in your recent work with writing of particular um scholars whether perkins or in the case of levinas and so this feels like it's a similar sort of thing it's that bond for you is like an adjunct or it's but it's something that is is and i think hopefully as we'll, we'll kind of talk about today even we have our primary or, or dominant or overwhelming or overriding research interest that Bond's always, there are some nice connections, certainly for me, for between animation and, and uh, the Bond title sequences, obviously in the case of Alex Fantasy and the, the Bond title sequences. Um, but obviously with you, what do the title sequences, yeah, what do they what yeah. do they do for you what do they mean for us yeah i mean it's it's it, they're partly it's partly that they're struck that that they have a structural significance within the movies which is i mean you know to, to sort of to put it in kind of basic terms really um the, you know the bond opening credit sequence normally comes a few minutes into the movie the bond film starts with what what i tend to call a pre-credit sequence i know that that some people call it a cold open but i'm not always sure that they are a cold open necessarily because i think there's a slight distinction between whether we're joining a story that's sort of in full flow or whether we're it's a kind of self-contained bit but i i call it a pre-credit sequence because the film begins with a few minutes of action and then we have an opening credit sequence and that opening credit sequence is normally the bond film song and as you say, there's, it's an animated sequence and, and it's a sequence that in kind of fantastical terms, I'm sort of, you know, thinking about the kind of the, the twin uh, sort of um, disciplines here that in, in fantastical terms, it kind of encapsulates aspects of the movie. While obviously, and again, stating the obvious, it gives us the opening credits. It, and one of the things that I really like and, and, and like to sort of think about with, with, with the Bond credits is how they work structurally, how they work formally as part of the, formally as part of the movie. So how do they work, you know, visuals, images, the timing of the credits, how it sets us up for the kind of adventure to come. Um, so, so there's that, and then, but there's, but there's also kind of representational aspects, of course, that are particularly interesting. Um, the ways in which the Bond opening credit sequences present themselves as, as part of the Bond sort of universe and how that's changed over time. You know, looking at credit sequences from the 60s and 70s, looking at the credit sequences more recently. Um, just to say one thing, for example, one thing that the Bond opening credits is, sequences are, are well known for and have been well known for is that they often contain sort of silhouetted or kind of sort of a fairly abstract images of women often in sort of scantily clad or sometimes even naked kind of silhouetted and, and it's interesting to see how to chart sort of the the progress of that kind of imagery and iconography over the decades so there's a so as I say there's a structural element for me how does it get us into the story how does it get us into the rhythm of the film but then there's also the kind of the content of those sequences and what can be talked about in that way as well I um, we rarely do qualitative analysis on this podcast. We sort of skirt around our opinions, but we're sort of not a review podcast, and we're deliberately not so. But we are going to present a sort of, you know, as I say, least least favorite for all Bond fans out there. Listen to my words carefully. Least favorite, you know, yeah. a, a, any Bond sequence is great, but but some are greater than others in the sort of animal farm sense of the word. But least yeah. favorite to most favorite um, Bond sequence. And so when I came to sort of trying to do my own individual rankings. 
I was sort of, I found it a real struggle. And then I started to sort of, I actually turned to a sort of piece of academic work, which I kind of don't respect that much, but often have to teach, which is Andrew Saris's, you know, um, three circles of, of auteurship, which is like, you know, step, you know, so this is how you rank a good film director, right? According to Saris, which is like step one, uh, it has to be sort of technically accomplished filmmaker. So they have to know what they're doing. They have to be able to sort of work the camera in a, in a, technical capacity step two is they have to have some trace of um a common style or theme right and 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 step three is they manage to marriage that that style with to to complement the content of the film right so the film itself is benefited by bringing the style of the director to it and i almost sort of started applying that to the sequences and that i decided that my favorite bond title sequences were ones that somehow augment or play with the themes both of bond more generally but also of the films themselves because there are some particular title sequences where like they're actually playing a really significant part of the movie itself that the the story that will unfold the themes it will tackle and, and they add a certain element of nuance and taste and flavor to um to, to a film that, and often, you know, in a way, what we're doing is doing damage to that in that we're taking them out of that context. But but quite often, these things are often consumed as like little, you know, music videos, three minutes, three, four minutes into the film. But actually, they they actually play a really significant role in setting up our narrative expectations, our experiential expectations, and our thematic expectations. So I sort of almost perform that ranking. And, and I've got a few that like, when we get to the top of our list, that I'm like, without this sequence, I'm not sure the film itself would mean the same thing that it means so i think they they play that role as well it's it's so funny because i made and i'm interested in in sort of how we judge them because as you say we we, i don't really have experience in making these kinds of these kind of claims and i was thinking about my own rationale for for choosing the the order that i did and obviously we'll kind of come to a a broad order if you like or an average order um but i was the opposite i the ones for me that were the lowest ranked were the ones that told a story because i didn't want bond title sequences to do that i wanted the bond title sequences to do something else i wanted to enjoy the song i didn't want to have to pay a attention hmm. for an extra four minutes of story and and actually i wonder whether that's folded into into the design uh, and so the bond title sequences across kind of bond scholarship have been regularly talked about as a sort of place of technology um of race of gender um as you said the kind of the the, the icon of the the um silhouetted female a place of sexuality uh, that are structured they are they structure the bond films and they are themselves structured by tropes and images um yeah. and so and this comes from authorship. So we have Morris Binder, we have Robert Brown, John, we have Daniel Kleinman, and we have, what is it, MK12 um, as the designers. Uh, and so it's it's sort of, these are, these are three, sometimes two-dimensional spaces that are structured with guns and with images of violence, with kind of primary pop art colours. There's a recent book that's come out um, called Spectres of 007, which has a chapter by uh, Jan Christopher Horak that talks about exactly this, the kind of modernist designs of some of them, the way that some uh, tell a bit of the narrative story, the way that some kind of don't really do anything. They sort of sit there and, and, and actually don't relate to the narrative. They just animate the song uh, and then there are some that are informed by the shift to digital technology which is kind of something i'm really interested in and again for me when i was making these discriminations i didn't like the overly tech uh, kind of technological ones i didn't like the title sequences that had too much going on i liked them quite stripped back um, and so i'm really interested in 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 our sort of broad consensus if we can kind of call it that but equally i found myself making judgments on did i like the song itself 
because there are some songs that are uh i'm not going to use the word duds but duds um you better not be talking about all-time high oh no I'm, I'm not i i think we all know we're talking about die another day but we'll, yeah. we'll come back to that um and then there are I, I also found myself thinking do i like the soundtrack more generally sort of the 80s uh synth style versus the um, big brass of the 60s versus the i don't know whatever it is of the 70s versus the the computer effects of the the audio effects of the 90s and 2000s uh, did I like the gun barrel uh, in terms of the design of the gun barrel? It's not there at the beginning of this film. That's annoying. And I, and there are so many different things. And also the the shot at the beginning or just before the song and the first shot of the film proper, I was making discriminations based on, do I like this lead into the song or do I not? And ha- where does it come? Um, and so, for Ed, I mean, when you were coming to your, your, and I know that you found it tricky because some it is like splitting hairs in lots of cases. And so when you were making discriminations about the the order, um, what were some of the ideas that were sort of floating around? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think I think I'm sort of in sync with both of you and the sorts of the the, the kind of cornucopia of things that we can take into account here. I've sort of was taking taking them all into account. Um, so it's sort of yeah, what what is the sequence itself doing, and do I like what it's doing visually? Do I like the song? Do I like the the way it's all put together as a sequence? But also, how does how does the film lead into the sequence, and how does the film lead out from the sequence into the film proper? Um, yeah, there's other aspects of the, the the gun barrel and so on. Obviously, they're not directly part of the opening sequence, with the exception of Doctor No, where the um, oh, and Casino and Royale. Casino Royale, yeah, exactly, yeah. where the gun barrel leads directly into the credits. But Doctor No is the the, the only film where there is nothing that happens before the opening credits. Yeah. Um, so all of the, all of those considerations, absolutely. They, I, I, just something, one thing, just to sort of react to one other thing that, that was said, which was that it's, you know, how do we talk about the sequence as a sequence isolated from the rest of the film? And how do we talk, uh, you know, can, in, in fact, can we even do that? Because we're, it's, it's within the film, but of course, at the same time, yeah, there is a sort of music video sort of aspect to it here um, that it, that it works as a sort of three minute thing on its own. But when I was watching them again uh, to prepare for this podcast and, and coming up with the, the you know the the best sort of ranking I could come up with, I couldn't put the film itself out of my mind. And there were a couple of the sequences that I ranked very highly where I'm not crazy about the song, for example, but I just feel that the song is right. You know, mm-hmm. so it, it was quite complex and there was no one thing that I could use here. I mean, qualitative judgments like this are very tricky. But you know, in a kind of Victor Perkins way here, actually, in a VF Perkins way, it's, you know, looking at the kind of coherence of the film as a whole, I think, helps us to look at individual sequences within it. So how is this sequence working in the context of the film as a whole? And I think I would never be able to talk about a Bond sequence without thinking of the film as a whole. Yeah, in respect. yeah, yeah. Right, we should uh, we should get to work, everybody. Uh, the mission begins. Um, okay, so I've got the list. I'm the one that did the maths this morning. So um, Ed and Chris will be reacting live to to, to these um, to these rankings. Um, how about we do this? Um, I'll 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 announce the the, uh, the rankings, and then I'll um, say who had it highest in their list, and I'll let that person sort of set up the 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 the, the um they'll be the advocate, I suppose, for the the video if that's all right um so um in 24th place so our least favorite uh bond opening title sequence oh it's tense isn't it um mm. is is the timothy dalton movie license 
to kill. Um, which I can say, um, me and Ed both scored um, quite lowly. In fact, me and Ed scored um, identically. So Ed, as guest, I'll let you introduce License to Kill. And and Chris, you had it slightly. Oh no, sorry, Chris, you had it more favourably than both of us. So Chris, you why don't you do the honours and introduce License to Kill, our least favourite officially uh, opening title sequence. Okay, so this is, it's strange because the minute you said that, I thought, oh, I really like this song. But anyway, <laughs> um, so this is Gladys, I suppose we'd also say Gladys Knight, License mm-hmm. to Kill, you know, the, the, the wonderful um, uh, singer of the, the song. So there are reasons my notes on it are as follows. Um, first of all, I think it's, I suppose it's a striking one because the film itself is is, is often conceived as, as very different of uh, the 80s Bonds, all directed uh, by John Glenn, who uh, Ed and I had the privilege of meeting actually a few years ago, um, and so uh, kind of talk, and we had wonderful conversations with him about quiches and a view to a kill. But that's for another podcast, or maybe this podcast. This one in about on. in about yeah. half an hour at this rate. Yeah, 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 sure. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, License to Kill. I it's it's one of those ones where it's. I think the song is terrific, but. All the way through, I was thinking, why is this title sequence sponsored by Kodak? That was the first question I had. Uh, And also, I have a real bugbear with the lack of synchrony between when the singer sings the title of the theme, the the film title, and when it appears on screen. And I've put, my first note is title not synchronized, but great title. Um, And then there's, and then it kind of generally keeps it simple. There's lots of inverted silhouettes, so rather than, the, the silhouettes being against a sort of luminescent or active and animated background, rather the background is is dark and the the silhouettes themselves are are at the animated component. Um, and I think the second half, oh yeah, the second half with the dancers I've put is odd because I think the first half a lot of I find this a lot actually in title sequences where the first half is great and the second half falls away or vice versa. Doctor No does a similar sort of thing. I love the stuff with the dots, less keen with the dancing ladies. Um, and so yeah, License to Kill. It was one of those ones that kept going up and down. It's started high and then gradually did go down 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 as i was sort of yeah it felt very 80s very product placement-y very i don't know there was something about it i mean it's, it's got all the usual box ticking you know uh silhouetted women a bit of violence a bit of a gun um but yeah i, I it's, a, it's a tricky one but because I, I really like the song but I, I didn't like the visuals essentially yeah i i like i mean yeah it was one of the ones i ranked the lowest but you know as you've said you know even a low ranked Bond opening credit sequence is still better than most things in life, really, let's be honest. Um, so, no, <laughs> Generally. I, I like the opening credits to License to Kill, but just but I, I do think it's it's one of the less distinguished ones. I like the song. I do like the song. I do think that it's a shame. I mean, the song is quite long, and the opening credits actually cut out the first verse of the song. So they use the second verse of the song and then the bridge. So the, the song as a single is, is, a, is a resplendent thing, with a, a great vocal by Gladys Knight. What I find about this opening credit sequence is what it leads in from and what it leads out to are far more exciting than the credit sequence itself. So it has a, a very sort of suspenseful opening credit sequence that, that, that ends with Bond and Felix parachuting into Felix Lysa's wedding. And as everyone yeah. leads into the church, um, we go into the credits. And then when we come out of the credits, the DEA, the American Drug Enforcement Agency, have captured Sanchez, who's going to be the main villain of the film. So it's it's bookended by extremely exciting scenes. But the credits itself, I just think, are a little bit routine. I, I don't really have much to add to that. And, I, and I'm aware of time, so I won't add too much. Do you, I guess it's probably time for my impossible question. Let's get it out of the way nice and early, though. Chris, is there a name for the style of silhouette that this uses? Because the one thing that did strike me is that, that, as you said, so the silhouettes are interesting and in that the footage is inside the silhouette and the blackness yeah. is is the rest of the shot, so to speak. Um, and mm. I just think that's... I, I, I sort of hadn't thought that actually that was quite a... Um, 
interesting little stylistic trait. Is that got any? Um, is that got a name, or has that got any history, or is it just a cool thing that they did in the in the uh, in that movie? Okay, I've got two responses. One yeah. is I think it's a cool thing that they did in that movie, and also I think there there, there are traces of it in in. Uh, Live and Let Die and The Man with the Golden Gun yeah. actually The Spy Who Loved Me and there's lots of repeating imagery well I, guess I think it might happen in Diamonds Are Forever as well at one point yeah ah uh, yes. yes are yes, they yes. holding a diamond at one point something like that anyway so makes sense like- but no there there isn't obviously you know we've we've talked previously when we've had the when we did the podcast on Lottie Reiniger and, and the sort of traditions of silhouette animation in the in the 10s and 20s so no I don't have anything to, to add I, um Obviously, silhouettes are something that we could talk about for every single every single one. But um, I, yeah, I kind of I kind of agree with with Ed that it's 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 sort of a by numbers, quite literally, because there are you know uh, casino chips on the on a table and lots and lots of things going on. But not one of my favourites. But um, yeah, a, a, a bad a bad Bond title sequence is is what it is. <laughs> There's definitely an era from sort of late Moore to, through to Dalton of a sense of just fatigue with some of these where you don't quite understand what they do in terms of the rest of the film. They're sort of a little bit unimagined. And I think this is definitely square in the middle of that um, that era. Why don't we move on to our first um, of two ties in our rankings? OK, so we have two films tied at 22. Um, and the first one of those movies um is and I'm going to do it in terms of um, more recent. Um, is uh, Die Another Day, um, which both Chris and I had ranked pretty much at the bottom, but I think was saved a little bit by Ed, who had it ranked much higher. So why don't we let Ed sort of um, dig him, dig himself out of this hole? Yeah. Well, I'm wondering, Chris, if one of the reasons you put it so low is that is that the opening credits is continuing the story. Yes, that's exactly why. <laughs> um, yeah, you said you don't really want to have to sort of concentrate on a story during the opening credits. And Die Another Day, the, the pre-credit sequence culminates in Bond being captured by the North Korean army and slammed into jail. And the opening <laughs> credit sequence shows him being tortured by the North Korean jailers. Um, while and there's all sorts of scorpions scuttling along the floor, and Bond's head is put in a in a in a sort of vat of icy water, and all this sort of thing. It's quite it's almost quite a brutal sequence in a way. But yeah. I like it because because of that that it that it conveys. It, I mean, he's in Korean jail for what 14 months, I think it is, and something like that. And and the opening credit sequence bridges the 14 months for us, so it's very economical storytelling. But the other main reason, and this might be the more controversial aspect here, as to why I rank this sequence fairly highly, is I really like the song, Die Another Day, which is um, performed, by, performed by Madonna and produced by Madonna and Mirway Armenzai um, in her sort of, you know, that period where she was working with him as a producer. I really like the song. It's it's For me, it's an example of a song a Bond song that isn't a traditional kind of crowd-pleasing Bond song, but which I think really works well on screen. So that's why I rate this sequence pretty strongly, actually. As a specialist in psychoanalytic film theory, I cannot condone a song that has the lyrics Sigmund Freud, analyse this. Um, so so just, just no, but, um, you know, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, I suppose. I didn't mind it. I quite liked it, sort of. I, I, I kind of take what you're saying and i think that it's a good it's a good sequence for the movie that it is unfortunately the movie that it is isn't very good um and i kind of like its cgi bonkersness um and i do like the scorpions and i will say and i'll tease this now 
this is a title sequence that I would argue is the CGI equivalent of another title sequence that I know Chris thinks fondly about that we will get to later on in the rankings. We'll, we'll just tease that there and I'll, and I'll set that up for my future self to explore. But I don't see the great difference between the kind of lavishness on display in Die Another Day and some of the, say, later... Um, Moors, for example, you know, and so I'm a bit of an apologist for Brosnan. I think he gets a bad rap, and I think mm-hmm. I think there is artistic merit in this sequence, but it is it is insane, and um, yeah, I don't think it quite works. Yeah, the only thing I mean I've got to add is is Ed. I know that that um, uh, Die Another Day is one of seven films that you ranked as joint ninth, uh, <laughs> just <laughs> as an indication of how difficult it is. Um, I, I I ranked it at twenty fourth because. Um, I, I've put it's not a title sequence, but a CG enhanced sequence of torture, uh, and the fact that it uses live action footage. There's something about when a Bond sequence uses live action footage rather than being purely animated. I sort of, I sort of am a bit w- w- wary of. But has it? I, I said it has decent flourishes. So there's a bit where the um, the silhouettes of the women are kind of sparking into life, and I do like the tails of the scorpions. But I've put the writers of the song aren't credited as if they wanted nothing to do with it, um, which I noticed. Mm. Uh, it is, and, and, and this is why I'm also averse to Goldeneye, which we'll get onto. I don't like the 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 the, 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 the title sequence going. This is a period of time in which things happened. I don't. I just and I don't like and I don't like the song. One thing I will say is that we, what we haven't kind of noticed is that a lot of these Bond songs have two two videos. They have the Bond music video and then they have the actual Gladys Knight sings "License to Kill" music video and the and I prefer the Madonna video where she's singing "Dying of the Day" than the actual use of it in the film. So we always have this. It's like Oasis, you know. The B sides of Oasis are always great because um, there were two lead singers. So the B sides are just other versions of their hits. And I get a similar thing with the Bond songs: is that you actually get the real music videos that went into the charts, and then you get the way that it's used in the film. And I think in this case, yeah, the CGI ness really put me off. And actually, this is true of a lot of them. I don't really like the over technological ones. Um, but Die Another Day, is all, it's got a bit of a bad rap and it's certainly got its, its sort of um, issues with CGI technology generally. Uh, mm. And so I wouldn't like to use that as a, as a sort of justification, but it just brings back memories of being really excited to see it and then being really disappointed when I'd seen it. Yeah. Well, well, you can keep the mic for a second there, Chris, because we'll move on to our other 22nd choice, which is uh, The Living Daylights. So unfortunately, yes. unfortunately, a very poor showing from Dalton in this ranking, but um, that's The Living Daylights. So, and you had it higher than us. So um, Chris, what's, what's The Living Daylights all about? Okay, so I ranked The Living Daylights 14th. So this is AHA um, singing The Living Daylights. There are two versions of this song this version and then their album version which is actually infinitely better there's something that was watered down ever so slightly to make it more bondian but the actual album version of aha's living daylights is ter- absolutely terrific completely uh, disagree now I- absolutely <laughs> completely disagree the bond version with the with the barry trumpets is the one to to go with and there's something glorious about that fusion don't know what you're talking about uh, <laughs> but this is why this is why we do it you know we do it to to to, to not not because we get on but because we we like talking about stuff uh, so i had it yeah so i've put it's key very formulaic and and women sitting in a glass and then there's a bit of a light show but I think the only thing that seems to have changed between 1973, four and this is that they've added in a puff of smoke. Um, but I kind of, I didn't mind it because I like the film. I think the film is, is, is kind of great. And again, works really nicely with the, with the pre-credit sequence, which is fantastic. And leading into this song, 
uh, make that what is it make that an hour and a half or something and then we're off and he's 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 shacking up with a woman as we listen to aha so yeah i i i like it it is formulaic but it's it's actually looking at my list it's the last of like the really good ones that and the spy who loved me and then we get into the the duds so for me the uh, living Dalits was the last of the of the good ones of the 80s good mm-hmm. ones and then we're off into sort of dud territory um mm-hmm. so yeah shame we've sort of we've sort of nipped timothy dalton in the bud already but um yeah you seem to have it lower though both of you i was gonna say for my part very similar comments to license to kill i think what happens before the credits and what happens coming out of the credits is very very exciting and i like both timothy dalton films a fair amount and i actually think they've both aged quite well um, as films, but I, in both cases, I think the opening credit sequence is just quite routine, um, and, and, and that's 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 yeah, that's sort of what I feel about it. Really, it's not memorable. I don't feel like it's memorable. And I think the fact that we're like, what is? There's a lot of the eighties ones that do blur into each other, and and I, I I would struggle to remember this one, but I think it's the best of the ones that I can't remember. Yeah, right I mean, just <laughs> on that point about them all blurring into each other, and sort of from mid late seventies to the end of the eighties, I, I I feel the same as well. Although my rankings sort of go all over the place within that sequence of, of sequences. But I w- I'm just reminded of what Mark O'Connell says about that, that set of Bond films in his book, Catching Bullets, Memoirs of a Bond Fan. He talks about the universal exports years, yeah? And like from Spy Who Loved Me 1977 through to License to Kill 1989, Bond, you know, the front for MI6 is universal exports. And there's also a kind of ho- homogeneity across those seven movies because... Lewis Gilbert directed Spy Love and Moonraker and John Glenn edited them. And then John Glenn edited, sorry, John Glenn directed all five of the 1980s. So the fact that the credit sequences sort of bleed into each other as well, to me, adds to a kind of pleasing homogeneity of that set of Bond movies. But it it does mean that some of the Bond credit sequences are a little bit samey. I like the use of contrasting colours in it. And I like the beginning, like Ed said, with the sort of the gun firing at the moment of the, the start of the title sequence. I think that's very arresting. I think, And I think you're right. There's a certain... Some of these sequences have great first 10 seconds and then they sort of peter off. And this is definitely one of them. Um, but yeah, okay. Um, so that's our, that's our 22nd ranked. Okay, so uh, we move up to 21 in the rankings. Uh, and and this, this is... a. Uh, Oh, I'm sad this is so low, if I'm honest, because I I, I love this movie. Uh, and it's Moonraker. Um, but I know why it is, and I'm partially responsible in that I've ranked it the lowest. Um, Ed, you actually had it at number nine, tied with, as Chris says, about 80 of them. But um, what, why, what, let, talk, talk to me, talk to us about Moonraker uh, and, its, and its special place in your heart. Um, the song is really, really underrated. Um, Shirley Bassey sung three of the Bond songs, um, uh, as well as one for Quantum of Solids that didn't make it into the film. But anyway, she sung uh, Goldfinger, Diamonds Are Forever and Moonraker. And I think Moonraker is a beautifully romantic song. Her best one yeah I, I do too i think it's a great uh, vocal and i think it's a really good song so there's that it's a pleasure to listen to um the other thing is i think it's twinned with spy who loved me which i know we'll get to so i won't say much more but in in that they're both i think for me very very elegant opening credit sequences and i think moonraker it's a perfect match of visuals 
pacing and song and credits appearing. So to me, in, in sort of formal terms, in stylistic terms, it's an extremely satisfying sequence. Um, that's it, really. I mean, I like Moonraker as a movie. When I was a kid, Moonraker was considered a bit of a bad bomb film. I think it suffered from overexposure. It was on TV an awful lot in like the early mid-80s. But I like Moonraker. Um, and, uh, yeah, I rate the song very highly. So I think that's why it got a pretty good ranking from me. Yeah. I mean, I, you're right that it, the sort of default narrative when we're talking about Moonraker is is the Star Wars narrative. The the It wasn't supposed to be the next Bond film. It was supposed to be For Your Eyes Only. And then we, we got an extra one. We got a bonus Bond film. And, and, and it's a shame that the Star Wars narrative has, and the turn to visual effects and the, the, all the space stuff has sort of obscured the qualities of it because it's a, it is a fabulous... It is a fabulous movie and and is indebted. I'm sort of fascinated by Bond cinema's relationship to to sort of art cinema and the death of Corinne in the film. I think is is really atmospheric and and wonderful. And and also and and I know that you know this. My I like the disco version of Moonraker at the end of the film in a way that I don't like the rugby boys chanting of nobody does it better at the end of the previous film anyway um my notes are similar actually i like the fact that it's slow and controlled and there's shots of of of, of earth but i've also put that it looks a little bit like a powerpoint or prezi presentation in the in the the world seems to remain the same and the camera moves in and out and goes to various places and i find that quite disorientating i mean i really like the film i think what's 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 frustrating for me is that it's set up with jaws falling into a big top at a circus mm -hmm. and you have the drum roll as if it was a circus mm -hmm. and i think oh that's that's a shame it's the it's the title sequence equivalent of putting that whistle over the uh, barrel roll of the car in the man with the golden gun you've got something great why have you ruined it with a sound effect and that's what that opening of the moonraker song does to that song it sort of sets it off on the wrong foot but um yeah fabulous movie and it's yeah i had it i had it right down at number 19 so um yeah it dragged down a, a pretty good good film for me yeah i had it like 20 something in my ranking i um i think it suffers from its comparison with the previous and i think sort of stylistically yeah. it's using lots of similar techniques and i'll just let i'll let's wait and talk about them in in relation to a perhaps more successful example um, and and i can't get over the fact that it starts with with jaws's crotch landing in yeah. our face in silhouette and then and then that's the beginning of the title <laughs> sequence a sort of that's not a it's, a, it's a quite an abrasive start so um yeah and and i and i've got i, I it's probably my least favorite um bassy number i'm afraid and i don't what? like the disco number so so i don't know what you're talking about but i love moonraker <laughs> um uh, absolutely love moonraker so um you know don't care it's still it's still wonderful um you know but um yeah, not for me, I'm afraid. Um, okay, uh, talking of films that one of us um, perhaps um, has less fondness for than others, uh, we move to number uh, 20, number 19 in our charts. I've probably done some maths wrong. No, no, sorry, it is number 19. I, this is another one of our two ties. So we have two films tied at 19. We'll start with the more recent of the two, uh, which is Goldeneye. Now, Ed, you had Goldeneye, very highly in this you had it ranked at number five um and i yes. think that's an interesting thing what i know about your relationship to the movie goldeneye so why don't you um take it away i've got to hand it to the opening credit sequence uh the, the sequence itself and the song um it this is the first bond movie really after the cold war it's 1995 that it was made and released 
And the film begins in sort of the 80s, but we don't quite realise that at the time. But then we, we, we after the opening credits, we cut to nine years later as uh, um, Bond and his um, colleague are driving along uh, in uh, south of France. Um, so 1995, and the credit sequence is filled with imagery of people dismantling the kind of icons of communism and the icons of the Cold War. So you've got sort of women taking pickaxes to concrete statues of Lenin and, and 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 things like that. So it's it's a very strong visual, and the song, which is um, um, written by Bono and the Edge from U two and performed by Tina Turner, I think is a really really sort of bold and vivid, but again controlled song. So I think as a sequence, it's really really good. Now you're absolutely right with the film Goldeneye. I do have a problematic relationship with it. There are lots of things that I think could be stronger about GoldenEye than R. Um, but I, so, so I sort of surprised myself by how highly I found I had to rank this opening credit sequence. But I think the sequence itself is so good at encapsulating an idea of time having passed and of the Bond series registering that that time has passed, that it just, for me, supersedes the doubts I have about the movie itself. I agree. I think um, it is my first one to pass my sort of three tier test in that I think stylistically it's really interesting and I think it thematically augments the, the, what the narrative's playing with, which is as, as exactly the image that you said there, Ed, the image of, of the women sort of dismantling the Cold War imagery. We have the two things the franchise is, is trying to wrestle with and arguably has been wrestling with since that movie, which is one, you know, the, the, the shifting gender politics of the era and how, how do we... How do we present the sexist, misogynist dinosaur, as um, M says in that movie, um, in a new way that that both keeps Bond who he is, but also reconciles that he's a chauvinist, that he's a misogynist, and all the other stuff? And how do we place him in a post-Cold War landscape? And and visually, that sequence is doing those two thematics in a really arresting way. So I, I really like it. I think it just others I like more, but it's, it was the it's the first one we've mentioned that I think actually add something really important to the sort of um, recipe of the rest of the movie. Uh, well, you're both wrong. So, <laughs> uh, no. Uh, so, I we've had many conversations, and this is Ed's point, but, I mean, uh, the, 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 the things to note with the title sequence. Okay, first of all, Daniel Kleinman, it's the first first one that he, he does after the franchise's sort of six-year gap, replacing Morris Binder. I feel like it's too busy kind of trying to tell this story. Um, yeah, I've put too much story. Uh, there are really good bits. So I like the Walthers that are sort of rotating and the women are standing on the the ends of the... I think that's a really arresting image. But um, women have more agency in the titles than they do in the film in lots of cases. And that's, that's always a problematic relationship that women are doing things, certainly in this case, um, that they that they perhaps don't do in the movies or the, the women in the title sequences are often more memorable than the, the forgettable women that are sort of uh what's the word just sort of cast away as bonds moving through his you know colonial journey or whatever um the film i think it's it's certainly the moment from an animation perspective where where bond discovers cgi you know and we've we've this idea of of there being this chronology of visual effects in hollywood and we've moved from techno futurism in the early 90s so kind of electronic hyper real imagery i know we talked about this when we we did our episode on on tron uh, many moons ago and then uh, later on in the 90s you get the sort of turn towards more realistic simulationist um imagery and so 
both actually GoldenEye and Tomorrow Never Dies, I've ranked quite low because they rely on that sort of techno-futurist uh, electronic imagery. I, d- I don't like the the glossy CGI nature. I sort of miss... I think in my mind, I know what Bond title sequences look like and they kind of look quite loose and silhouette and and um, you can see the edges and the seams and, the, and, and there's something too glossy, I think, about all of the Kleinman ones, actually. Um, apart from... The World Is Not Enough, which I've ranked super high because I think it's fantastic. But I, I'm not a big fan of Goldeneye. And I think the minute where that the gun appears from that woman's mouth, I've, I've, I've lost it. I've fast-forwarded it. Yeah, I probably agree with you, your thoughts on the film there, um, Chris. But um, yeah, I think the title sequence um, stands out um, in those regards. But I think you're right. And I think it does raise a wider question about sort of if the title sequence is doing something that isn't then backed up by the film itself, do we discredit Do we Is that a, a reflection on the title sequence? Or, and it's, that's, you know, that's a minefield, but perhaps we'll keep talking about it as we go through. So tied with Goldeneye, this is an interesting sort of just in terms of the title pairing um, at number 19, which I'll introduce because I had it ranked higher than you guys, which which was Man with the Golden Gun. Um, so we have a, gold, a golden pairing at 19. Um, uh, and uh, Man with the Golden Gun, I, I kind of love, even though I don't, in the sense that um, there's this weird era from a sort of, uh, I, I think from a sort of late Connery through to sort of mid-more of, of a shift from more abstract the silhouettes the animation towards more and more live action photography um and and uh man with the golden gun is a really interesting one in that there's loads of just sort of filmed sort of you know pro filmic images of women but (laughs) i've got written in my notes there's just this rampant exoticism to to all of it which uh, you know which is which is awful and problematic and 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 guilty of all the uh, sort of racial uh, critical race theories that we could apply to it, um, but it's certainly backed up by the rest of the movie, which is rampantly exotic in every sense of the word. Um, it's a film that sort of you know is like the Bond equivalent of a sort of carved wooden elephant, um, and 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 I kind of like that the film um, starts with that, and I like and I also like just on a sort of you know again like the best bit of the title sequence is the first five seconds. It starts with. Um, an unnamed woman staring into the camera, sort of unblinking. And there's a weird sort of spectorial confrontation with that in that you're sort of almost sort of challenged or positioned or or, or met with the gaze of this woman who is then be- becomes the object of the gaze if we start sort of thinking about this in terms of like, you know, Maura, Laura Mulvey's visual pleasure and narrative cinema and the male gaze. And it's I think it's interesting, at least for those first five seconds, playing with that dynamic in that the, the image feels quite powerful even though very, very quickly there is a certain power taken from the woman and, and placed back onto the sort of male um, spectator or the assumed male spectator. So I kind of liked it because it was quite confrontational. Um, and I kind of like Man with a Golden Gun because it's quite confrontational. Well, I mean, confrontational is one word. Orientalist is another word. I mean, absolutely. Um, absolutely fair. Absolutely fair. <laughs> I bet I'll, I'll be very kind of quick on this. I... I have a kind of love hate relationship with the film. I always, when I rewatch the film, and I had, you know, I've been to James Bond Island in Thailand um, as part of my my travels, and had my my um, photo taken on the beach where Scaramanga is is uh, there with his three nipples at the start of the film. But I really like the film, and I like it more every time I watch it. Uh, my only notes on it is that it's it's interesting as a partner with. Uh, live and let die so the film previously in terms of some of the repeating imagery and the kind of clasping hands that seem to appear in all of them 
from about no, yeah, certainly the late seventies. Um, I put the song is crammed with innuendo. My favorite bit is when Lulu sings "We Shall See" and then the women do a dance against fireworks. Uh, but you have a lot of lotus flowers and you have a lot of women stroking guns. And I mean, if we're thinking about Edward Said's Orientalist, mm. uh, it, you know, the tying together of the erotic with the exotic. Um, and the far mystical east where bond goes to do things and return home there's there's a lot of there's a lot of that going on and mm. and the film's grubby but i quite like the grubbiness of the film but i really like the the kind of design actually we haven't really talked about i like the design of the title sequence um yeah i mean i i i i'd go with all of that um the, i quite like man with the golden gun as a film i i, I I, again, I do sort of think that that it has the problems that, that you both identified as well. Um, one thing I'll sort of say about this uh, sequence, though, is the song is one of the few Bond songs, I think, that isn't about Bond. And that's it. That's interesting. It's about Scaramanga, the man with the golden gun. He has a powerful weapon. He charges a million a shot. It's about Scaramanga. So I think there's an interesting sort of narrative dimension here to having a, a Bond song that's not about Bond, because Scaramanga, actually, of all the villains in the Bond uh, series. Scaramanga was one of the most prominent. I suspect Christopher Lee has got pretty, pretty hefty screen time in The Man with the Golden Gun. I haven't got a, an exact count for it, but I would imagine he's in it quite a lot. I think it's almost a leading role in itself, actually, Scaramanga. So I think I think that that's interesting about it. The other thing is, is in my notes, I wrote, you know, it's Lulu singing it. Lulu, I put bel- belts out the song. Um, Lulu won Eurovision in a four-way tie um, with Boom, Bang, Bang, Bang a few years prior to this. And this is 1974, Man with the Gun Gun. In 1974, ABBA won Eurovision at Br- in Brighton. And so I sort of put in my notes that this feels like a Eurovision Bond song to me. Um, yes. The, yeah, the other thing I have is it's... As a song, it's it's quite difficult to lead into it and to lead out of it as a credit sequence because it begins with that very, very fast and ends with the bang, bang, bang at the end. And I think the film struggles a little bit in its editing with how to lead into it, particularly how to lead out of it. I think they needed to have, they should have lent into it more and just gone with that powerful kind of banging noise that it begins and ends with. So I think it's a little bit jarring the way it's placed in the film. But I, I think the song is fun. Um, but I, I can't think too much more about it than that, really. Yeah. I think it's a, it's interesting because obviously, you know, I suspect as we get towards our top of our rankings and as we keep talking, one of the obvious things that these title sequences present is a fantasy of, of gender, or it's certainly a male fantasy of gender. But of course, we shouldn't forget that, and as demonstrated by what we've just said about this sequence, it also presents a a, a Anglo-pho- an anglophonic fantasy of race in many cases and there's lots of these title sequences um we've touched on one now and, and i will touch on a few as we go that are certainly um orientalist as they as they are sexist um and that's a, that's an interesting one there let's move on to 18 um and and this is our first daniel craig if i'm not mistaken um uh, and there's only one person of the three of us who has to talk about this movie um which might give us a clue of which it is and it's quantum of solace Ed, you had it ranked much higher than us, um, as and and you are the the person to speak about in terms of quantum of solace. So take it away. Um, yeah, I ranked it high. This is this I think is one of the ones I mentioned earlier on where I, even though I don't love the song, I think the song is absolutely right for the movie. Um, the, it's 
so the song is the song is almost like a rock song, really. It's a kind of duet by Jack White and Alicia Keys. It's called Another Way to Die. Um, the opening credit sequence is really set around kind of desert iconography for the most part. And you've, so it's very, very sandy indeed. And the colour scheme of the opening credit sequence is very sort of brown and sandy and, and and so on and so forth and you've got these credits kind of flying around the screen it uses aspects of the kind of gun barrel iconography with kind of dots leading through with credits sort of exploding and swirling around on screen to this song by alicia keys and jack white another way to die i think it works i think one of the reasons it works really well for me in quantum of solace quantum of solace is the shortest bond film um, as we know, yeah, so Quantum of Shoulders is the shortest Bond film. It's also edited very, very rapidly. It's got a rapid fire pace to it. And I think that the song is just, you know, just, you know, is really part of that sort of architectural structure of the movie. Um, it, it, I'm not quite sure really what the lyrics mean. Um, it doesn't have a major sort of bearing on the story of the film. There was an alternative song um, called No Good Without Goodbye mm. um, that um, David Arnold uh, composed the music for and, and Shirley Bassey recorded actually, but it didn't make it into the movie. But the, the instrumental version of it kind of provides a lot of the kind of underlying score, David Arnold's underlying score throughout the film. And I have asked myself if I'd been in the position of, Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli in giving the final decision on what song to use, would I have gone with um, the Shirley Bassey, David Arnold number instead? Much as I like it, I think I would, I like to think I would have come down on the the song that we have got in the film because I think it is a really good choice for the movie. Yeah, I've got my notes is just sepia because a lot of it is sepia. Yeah. I also didn't think much happened. I, I mean, you know, I really like this, the, the film uh, and no joking aside, I think we all or of a similar opinion that it's it's perhaps Craig's best mm-hmm. film. Um, yeah. Even though it's sort of got this, as you said, this reputation for not perhaps being 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 as successful as Casino Royale, which I I don't happen to like as much. Mm. Um, I taught the opening sequence of the of the film in relation to exactly that average shot length, the really short rapid fire editing. So um, yeah, David Bordwell writing about intensified continuity talks about exactly that. You know, the really short um, sharp shots. And I think there were about four or five shots with, of Bond changing gear at the start yeah. in the in the um, in the car chase, but then it slows down. We get to Sienna, and then he opens up the boot, and inside the back of this car is Mister White, and he says, "Time to get out." And you go, "Right, I can pause." And then the film doesn't let you get out because it continues exactly that frenetic visual style. Mm. Um, we have the yeah, the desert imagery, the sandy. It's very grainy and very sort of granular in the aesthetic, mm. which which I don't mind. But I've said it's looking at it, it's too jumbled. It's very dark and. I don't really know what's going on. I, f- I find it quite difficult to see. Um, and so kind of spatially, it's quite chaotic. And in that way, I think it absolutely mirrors that intensified continuity and, and, and rapid quickfire editing. The camera moves too fast. Um, and also, it's one of the rare instances where the film starts before the end of the song. So the song is still mm-hmm. going on where mm-hmm. you get the the swoosh of the flag um, to the, then is the film proper and, and sort of is is this um, horse race. But the song is still going on. and And... I, I thought that was interesting, but I really, I really like the film. But um, I couldn't, I couldn't remember. I like, and I like the song as well. I think it fits nicely with the with the film. But the actual design of the title sequence, I, I didn't, I didn't enjoy. It's too granular and too, too grainy for me, and too sepia. Yeah, I, I, I there's a certain screensaver quality to the animation. Yes. It feels a bit cheap. It feels a bit 
previs. Um, yeah. I, and I yeah. don't know if that's anything to do with the, you know, it's easy to, to, cause the, the, this film was notoriously sort of rushed in terms of its production schedule. Um, and I don't know, it's very lazy to say maybe that's something to do with it, but it, it does certainly feel a bit cobbled together at the last minute. Um, but there are some, I like, there's, I like the image of sort of de- the, the, the use of desert imagery, the sort of, uh, women disappearing and reappearing in the sand, um, and that plays into some of the locations in the movie. So it's not uninteresting, but um, but uh, yeah, I'm with Chris. The design of it just feels a bit um, lacking, some sort of pan- um, panache or some sort of Bondian, um, I don't know, je ne sais quoi. Um, but I, I can't quite put it into words. But it's it's the the movie's wonderful, um, and and Ed Ed is is the author, ladies and gentlemen, of. Um, the best unpublished essay on quantum solace you're ever going to read. It's like up there with the sort of the um, the real version of the magnificent Andersons that no one gets to see. Um, so at some point, Ed, you must uh, complete that essay and let the world see it because it's um, you, you're a, you're you talked me and Chris into loving quantum of solace. So um, I was sort yeah. of hoping you'd do the same with the title sequence, but I think you've got a taller ask for that. I, I, well, I probably just, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd probably just need to think about how to talk about it more in relation to the film as a whole, I think, mm. because I, I, I can't disagree with anything that either of you have said about the sequence. I think it's quite jumbled and a little bit screensaver as well. I think the film just for me creates a mood of, of sort of, of frenetic, misery actually that i think is 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 such a characterful study of james bond and i think the the opening credits just whirls us around in that in that headspace and that's why i really really like it and i think the movie is just fantastic well well at 70 we've had our first daniel craig and now we've got our second straight after um with actually only one point um, separating the two, which is Spectre, and I get to speak about Spectre yeah. because I am currently on the microphone, but also because um, I'm, I ranked it high. It was actually in my top ten, uh, and I think that probably sums up my relationship to Spectre compared to the rest of you two, because um, I quite like the movie. In fact, I like the movie quite a lot, but um, I recognise some of its flaws. Look, I've I decided that this experience has taught me that I, I, li- I like an hysteric title sequence. Um, if you're going to do a Bond title sequence, I don't I don't need it to be modest, and I don't need it to be austere. Um, I like I like it full gonzo and, and bonkers, and this has certainly got some bonkers stuff in it. I love the octopus, um, sort of uh, CGI octopus crawling over everything. I love that image of Bond, sort of surrounded by this weird sort of harem but it's also positioning him as the object of um of of spectacle he's he's um he's at least uh, naked from the from the waist up which sort of is a callback to casino royale but i think the first time in the title sequence we've seen um the flesh of bond on display bonds often an image of of visual spectacle in in the title sequence as well but um but certainly daniel craig's body is on display um here front and center i i think that's that's really arresting and i love the song i don't understand why people don't love this song i think um i essentially think there are almost three types of bond songs there's the hey bond isn't he great song there's the watch out here comes the villain he's dangerous song uh, and the, there's the please James don't hurt me oh god you already have song um, and this is what's great about the Sam Smith song is it's it's number three but it's sung 
um, by someone who sort of through their own life has 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 transitioned from various different gender identities. Um, and the way they are singing about James Bond really sort of highlights the sort of balance of gender that the, the franchise is, is really trying to wrestle with properly. I don't think it's succeeding just yet, but it's definitely there's an earnestness to the song that that's reflects the earnest of its attempt to, to negotiate the gender politics of Bond. So I, I, I really like the sequence. I've got to say, I I stand by all, all the other rankings that I sent over to you guys earlier this week. But actually, I sort of woke up this morning thinking that I underranked this sequence. I actually really like it quite a lot as well. Um, so I feel a bit sheepish about that because I wish I'd put it higher. So let me sort of say now that I that I do think it's higher. Uh, I really like the song. Um, I can understand why people don't like it, um, but I. I do really like the song. I didn't like it the first time I heard it, but by about the second time I heard it, I, I was liking it. I do like the sequence, although I don't think it's totally successful. I think some of the kind of bonkersness of it is a bit is a bit jarring, really. I mean, I can do without the kind of octopus-like thing sort of sitting astride the Spectre boardroom table, and then when the, the camera sort of angles up to it, there's a sort of almost human face at the top of it. I think that's something quite bizarre. But at the same time, there's a moment right near the start of the sequence when you've got Daniel Craig topless and a woman draws her finger over his shoulder and there's kind of like a fire on his shoulder blade, and we hear Sam Smith singing, I've spent a lifetime running and I always get away. It's a beautiful movie moment it really is so i no i i i quite like it and oh so i i had it ranked number 18 between the man with the golden gun and moonraker so two we've already (laughs) talked about so i'm quite low down um and as we've been talking or as you you both have been talking i've been thinking about it and and i think the reason i ranked it so low is because i ranked skyfall so high uh Hmm. and my pro i mean spec i yeah i also really like really like the song i couldn't i couldn't tell you what's in the title sequence at all i i i don't think it's particularly memorable however the thing for me that saves it is the thing that i really like about the goldfinger titles and the honor majesty's secret service titles which is the evocation of past scenes and sequences mm. from other bond movies mm. and that is the thing i think saves it uh and fits in entirely with with Spectre. You know, these are other Bond movies that the, the, the film has a spectral quality because it's haunted by the three other three other Bond movies. And I've written and, and I'm interested in in how these these Bond movies plot uh, uh, this sort of stage of grief. You have bombing and heroism. You have death and mourning. You have revival. And then in this film, you have Haunted. You're still haunted. You have you have you've had your Skyfall 2012 Olympic revival. Hurrah, Great Britain, wonderful British bulldog. Um, and then you have this ah, but I'm still haunted by the stuff that's gone before. So actually, the title sequence does work really well when it has that image. And I think it's because of Judy Dench. I think the minute you see um, the image of Judy Dench and Sam Smith's talking about. Uh, 
shards of glass from the past shatter and and her image i think that's fantastic so i probably have done it a disservice but um yeah i i just it's not as memorable or i don't think it's quite quite as classy as skyfall i think that's what it is and it's sort of because you have quantum of solace which i didn't particularly like as we talked about skyfall being this amazing amazingly designed sequence and then this one this is always it's like the the post skyfall malaise the come down and i and i i i I would totally buy that i could watch it three or four times and then and then fall in love with it but i wonder whether that's true of the film as a whole as well i i just also one more thing i'd say about this sequence is i like the way it moves into the sequence and the way it moves out with the use of the specter ring so we 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 move into a close-up of the specter ring which is a, a ring with the kind of octopus kind of design on it and then we go through that into the opening credits and then the last shot in the opening credits is the ring again and then we go through that onto m's desk where the newspapers are falling all the dreadful headlines about what's been what bond's been up to i think it's nicely worked out in the movie no i I agree actually the the, that raises a good point about the way that bond films and and a lot of the john glenn ones of the 80s where the first shot that sort of universal exports cycle where and we've talked about this over over goodness knows how much Greek food about the desire to have a have a formulate by the numbers Bond movie where the song ends and you have Bond tell me what happened in so and so and M is chastising his his favorite his favorite son if you like mm. and I and I and that that but again you know Spectre writes a, a check that it doesn't quite cash in that sense because you think oh here we go we're going to be oh no never mind but um, yes, I agree. The, the transition in and the transition out, certainly in the case of Spectre, the transition out into the desk and the, the headlines and the, what happened, that, that is really good. And then, then it kind of falls away. But maybe it's time, you know, we're not going to get a Bond film this year. So maybe, maybe we can reclaim Spectre as this year's Bond film as well. Sounds good to me. Let's let's keep let's keep the party rolling because the next one, although we've got it ranked in the middle, I've noticed the time. By the way, this is definitely going to be our longest episode. So, listeners, uh, listeners, I hope you're ready for you know pour yourself another black velvet. I might get one in a minute and uh, and and do enjoy the show. Um, but yes, at number sixteen, um, kind of right squared, almost in the middle of our rankings, but uh, a, a great one is Live and Let Die. Um, and uh, I think Chris. You had you, this ranked the highest. Let me just check that. Yeah, you've got, you've got it ranked right. I had it pretty similar to you. And Ed, you've got it a bit lower. So why don't we hear from Chris first? Okay. No, I mean, I, I this one went up and down. And I, I mean, I really like it. It's, you know, it's it's a little bit, we're back into Orientalist territory and, and the racialized other. Like, I, I'll give it that. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd, I, I have kind of questioned, I know that Ed can speak about this better than I can, but Bond's, certainly 1970s Bond's relationship to other genres black exploitation and uh, obviously in the case of the Mammon Gong Gong kind of Kung Fu. But um, yeah, I mean, I really like the way that the letters ripple in and out. I think that's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. And, and a first for the Bond movies, if I remember, the way that they ripple in and appear and then ripple out again. Um, I think the synchrony, this is the first time where I felt the synchrony and I watched them in order, uh, the synchrony between Wing, Paul McCartney and Wing singing the song and then when Live and Let Die, the title appears, and then the image is on screen. I thought it was a really perfect match between sound and image. I do have a kind of fetishizing. It's one of the first to fetishize women's hands, which I find really interesting. Binder obviously has a thing with 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 women's hands. They're kind of clasped and then also open up, and that is an icon that appears, I think, over the next two or three. Man with the Golden Gun and the Spy Who Loved Me with the hands that open. Um, and in the case of the Spy Who Loved Me, catch him as he's falling with the Union Jack parachute so yeah i really like it the kind of fire and the voodoo theme of it um but i can see yeah as a, as a piece of design work 
I think the synchrony of sound and images is wonderful, but perhaps in terms of its its uh, racial imaginary, it's it's a little bit more yeah problematic. But um, yeah, I, I I really like it, and I gave I ranked it number eight. Yeah, I I, I did rank this quite low. Um, I like the song. I like the film quite a lot. Um, I do think the film has some problems that date it. Um, yeah, nineteen seventy three. Um, as you say, Chris, you know it's. It's one of the Bond films that's quite explicitly sort of riffing off or drawing on um, a cinematic trend of the time, and and the the cinematic trend that Live and Let Die is riffing off is black is black exploitation movies. I mean, to, to to the extent that Bond actually travels into Harlem, um, in on uh, on Manhattan, and um, and sort of and a lot of the villains and henchmen and so on are uh, men of color, uh, African Americans, um, and that they and that the film sort of very much sort of works within works within the black exploitation mode i would say but but that comes with some sort of um racial sort of representations that i think have probably dated it and and i suspect felt problematic at the time but but certainly feel questionable now and one of the things about the credit sequence is that it does have a lot of women of color and and i just don't know to what extent the film is is displaying them as that as objects and to what extent it's not. Um, so it just feels a bit uncomfortable for me. But I think design-wise, movement-wise, pacing, the, the sequence goes really well with the song. I think the song by Paul and Linda McCartney is is really, really good. Um, so yeah, and again, you know, I can't say there's a Bond opening sequence I don't like. I rate them all in certain ways, but I just think there's a, a slightly uncomfortable aspect for the Live and Let Die one for me. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think I think this one, as you say, paired with Man with the Golden Gun, there's a couple of these where like the, the use of close-ups of women looking at the camera seem to be a really sort of pronounced feature of it. And I'm, I guess I'm kind of, you know, the, the moments themselves don't fit with the context in that within the context, they're very much... Um, I think objectification is 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 absolutely right, and I th- and I don't think there's any sense of agency in the characters. But there's just something about the pure visual kind of arresting quality of these women looking into the camera that sort of you know from I guess a, like a classical film theory point of view, is it you know Bella Balzac who sort of talks about the the close up as sort of just sort of being this sort of um, mirror to the human face or at least sort of opens up um the viewer's ability to fantasize about the human face perhaps problematically as as ed just pointed mm-hmm. out but i just i find something about those close-ups staring into the camera just really kind of you know you know i, I guess affecting um you know it, it gets the hairs up on the back of my my, my um my neck and um so it's sort of, and that, that with the fire in the background, it's really kind of, you know, perhaps powerful in a horrific manner, exactly as you're saying, Ed, but powerful nonetheless. Well, on that theme of looking, I, I was I was interested, and I meant to raise this when you were talking about this earlier, the, the role of the female looking out in, in these consecutive films, so um, Live and Let Die mm. and The Man with the Golden Gun. And I hadn't really thought about that, the positioning of the woman looking out at us. Uh, and it reminded me of, obviously, these are, these are movies that begin in quite a declamatory way anyway with the gun barrel. So we have Bond turning to us and, and shooting out and we've already, you know, he's already shooting at us. So there's already a sort of connection being made. Um, and the white iris is gun barrel. It's a bullet hole. It's a camera lens. It's a micro dot. It's a human eye. 
but ultimately it's a constellation of, of gestures denoting the many ways of sort of seeing and being seen and actually as a formal device the gun barrel then links up to these open-endedness of the films anyway that declare to us that Bond will return so it's already the Bond movies are already really interesting in the way that they are open-ended in their narratives but then also intensify this idea of spectatorial engagement through a constant acknowledgement of our presence gun barrel James Bond will return so they're already going hey you we're a Bond movie, aren't you know? And and actually, that's a really interesting in relation to the role of the women in these title sequences that are doing a similar kind of, um, yeah, they're part of that project of that kind of spectatorial project. But I'd not thought about that. But I can I can absolutely picture the 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 live and let die when when the title comes on and the the woman changes into a skeleton and then back again and or, no, a, voodoo, a voodoo mask and then back again on fire and, and those, those really d- moments where the characters are looking out or these these women are, are looking out I think is really unusual and and striking in a way I'd not really thought about before well it makes it makes me think of there's a sort of not to get too off topic but there's a Lacanian theorist Todd McGowan who sort of tries to rewrite sort of film theory history in a way and talk about this issue of the gaze which we often like to talk about you know, as as something belonging to the spectator, and he sort of goes back to the psychoanalytic theories that that these theories that things like Laura Mulvey were riffing on, and actually tries to sort of argue that if you really sort of go back to these theories and see them in their wider context, the gaze actually is more something belonging to the the camera than it is belonging to the spectator, and actually films gaze at us as much as we gaze at movies and I, and and therefore there are there is the cinema has the potential to sort of prick at our irrational selves by being by 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 somehow looking at us and asking us to look back at it and it's that in dialogue that is interesting i think there's i think you could I, I feel in those moments the gaze of the camera upon me um and 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 you're right ed in that, that, that if you then contextualize that with the rest of the narrative um and even the rest of the title sequence to be honest that that power that one might attribute to the image is is perhaps well it is neglected and neutered but nonetheless they stay with you as these moments where you feel the presence of 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 the image upon you and there's something kind of powerful about that um i think for the spirit of time we should move on to 14 and 15 in together as a package and the reason i'm arguing this is that they're two films that come sequentially in the bond franchise uh both ed and i have them ranked like within a within a point of each other um and chris you have them both ranked pretty highly so i'm gonna let chris talk to us about both of them and they are octopussy and a view to a kill um, uh-huh. so these are two late more movies um i mean there's a lot of unpacking both of them but 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 chris set up octopusy and a view to a kill for us okay so uh, i was trying to guess which ones they were going to be as you were talking so these are my two favorite roger moore title sequences and they do come sequentially yeah. so octopusy uh is is 1983 annoys me a fraction that the title of the song isn't the title of the film but i i'd hate to be in a meeting where you pitch a song called octopusy so <laughs> we'll go with rita coolidge's all-time high instead um you know as well as i do that at some point in this podcast alex is going to edit in a filler up please and then we get into the song which is uh, the best Probably way happen now filler up please <laughs> I, but I, I like Octopussy because it's got the kind of light projection all over 
all over bodies. Uh, mm. And it's sort of like a, an iteration of, of the earlier Brown John, so the Goldfinger and, and then From Russia With Love before, um, that use the female body as a screen. And so you have these these lights and, and, and sort of light shows projected onto the female body. But I really like the light projection in Octopussy. I found it very romantic. And I know, Ed, that you have lots of things to say about the use of romance in the Bond films and in, and in um, sort of, I think, in the case of Fiore's Only, which was the film before Octopussy and this one, Bond's relationship to uh, the, the leading lady uh, and, you know, and, and the role of romance. So I thought found it very romantic and I found it kind of quite classy. It's got one of my favourite bits of the Moore sequences, which has all the arms wrapped around Roger Moore. I found, found that absolutely wonderful. Um, I'll talk about A View to a Kill for as long as you want me to, it is my favourite James Bond movie, and will remain my favourite. And I and I and I told John Glenn this, and he laughed in my face um, because he didn't believe me. But he, it's definitely <laughs> true. Um, I've told you this many times, but yeah, I've read stuff on the on a view to a kill title sequence that says it looks like it was designed by French and Saunders. But I'm taking that as a plus. I think it's a wonderful title sequence, very luminous, uh, luminous paint over over female bodies. It's a little bit literal, so you have dance into the fire, and then a woman dances in the fire, and it's very 1980s. But Octopus and a view to a kill together are an an unbeatable uh, exclamation point at the end of the Roger Moore era. Discuss. Oh well, I don't know how to follow that. Um, I mean, I you know, I I like both movies a lot as well. Um, I like I, particularly Octopussy. Actually, I think is one of the most underrated Bond films. I also do think it's very very romantic. Um, Views of a Kill I like as well. I just think the film's a little bit slow, but I do like it a lot. Um, and uh, yeah, and have a blast while watching it. Um, in terms of the credit sequences, in both cases, um, I think there's cheesy elements to them. Um, I do like the kind of undulating octopus yeah. that's projected over the bodies in, in the octopusy sequence, the, um, particularly as it sort of grows at one point. It's really, really nice. Um, I, so, you know, I, I suppose I just think that probably by this point in the kind of Roger Moore um credits sequences we're seeing things that we've seen before in other credit sequences um where it's with it's just feeling a little bit a little bit been there done that in a way um but it's not a bad thing i mean I, we've all been there and done that in in <laughs> multiple multiple watchings of all of these films over the years because we love them so much so i certainly don't mind a been there done that element to a, a title sequence but it's that's what probably why i didn't rank it more highly it didn't it didn't sort of take me by surprise or or feel more effective than it is view to a kill um i like the opening credits the song actually was a big deal in 1985 it got to number two in the charts best performing bond song uh for uh, until skyfall got to number two as well and then the, the two most recent ones have got to number one um but um it's so it was a very very popular song wasn't it Duran Duran in in 1985 and the film showcases the song superbly i do think some of the, the imagery is a bit literal as you say um, but can't complain when I'm listening to that song. No, 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 no. I think actually Barry uses that song really nice. It's one of my favourite Bond scores, I would say, actually. I think the the use of the film, because that's another thing, is when we've talked about this, and, and um, hopefully we'll talk about it when we talk about Tomorrow Never Dies and the scandalous sidelining of Katie Lang's surrender, but the way in which the song then becomes a running motif and, and, and so forth. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I think the... the seeing their being there done it thing is is interesting because i find a lot of the more ones not only do they bleed into each other but there is an awful lot of repetitive imagery and and bond is looking in the title sequence to a lot of the later ones like he did in 
the spyro love me and i think they are taking footage and redoing it and in the case of fior arizona which i ranked lower than both of these actually uh, all they did was add in a bit of water to connote the film takes place underwater um but yeah the reuse of actual footage is particularly striking because it reminds me of of you know it reminds me of disney animation in the 70s that are reusing reusing footage they're kind of tracing over it and stuff so there must be a fascinating sort of industrial moment where they've just got this pile of <laughs> pictures of naked women and stills of roger moore and go we can make something out of this right i mean i mean i don't know if i've got a lot to say about octopussy so let me start with a view to a kill i've all i've got written is absolutely bananas very much like the movie black light lots of fire um, and this is the thing when I teased earlier about Die Another Day. To me, this is the same title sequence, just done pro filmically. It's insane. It makes no sense. It's throwing everything it can at it. Um, and I don't know what it's what sticks and what doesn't. But hey, I'll go along for the ride. It's absolutely fine. Um, but but it's a very similar moment in the franchise and a very similar title sequence in in that way. I do quite like the, the kind of arresting yeah. the colours and things. Um, Octopussy. The only thing I've really got to say about Octopussy um, actually ties into the next one. And I just noticed the next one, um, I probably should have done all three at the same time because the next one is For Your Eyes Only. So oddly, we've got all three um, sort of in in that order. Um, And and For Your Eyes Only, I, 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 I love the first sort of, 30 seconds of and then I could give or take a little bit um, and the, what I love about it is that one it's actually obviously it's, what's interesting about it is that we have um, Sheena Easton in the title sequence so we have someone singing the song on screen um, which I think is is kind of really cool for about 30 seconds and then it does look like a pop video so I sort of there's a there's a problem with that but what I, the moment in For Your Eyes Only that I just want to flag up in comparison with Octopussy is that there is a moment in For Your Eyes Only where like Sheena Easton basically claws at the projected image of James Bond um, and it's a really interesting moment in that we've got a, a, an impossible image that that the that the female singer is 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 sort of longing for and desiring, just as we look at this equally impossible image and are supposedly des- asked to desire in itself. So I think there's a really complex play between various levels of spectorial fantasy and and desire going on in in, in that one little moment. Um, and then in Octopussy, we get the image of Bond projected onto the body of a naked woman. So there's an interesting sort of reversal of the same kind of dynamic where they're and and we can talk about this as we get closer to to our sort of top 10 because there'll be more of this to come but projected images on projected images become a sort of increasing um part of this franchise um so yeah so let's throw four your eyes only into the mix yeah i uh I, I the the fact that the singer is on screen singing to me is is quite a unique cell of this opening credit sequence. Um, I don't I don't think it uses Sheena Easton on screen particularly imaginatively, but just the fact that she's there gives it a certain kind of early eighties. It does give it a pop video thing, as you say, but I quite like that about it because one of the things I feel really about this sequence is it's a very is very personal for me, which is it's the first Bond film I saw in the cinema. So I would have been, summer of 1981, six years old. And my dad took me and my brothers to see this when we were all on holiday in Cornwall. And my mum 
took the opportunity to go for a walk on the cliffs for a couple of hours. <laughs> um, so, it, so I, 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 so I just have a sort of primal, childlike sort of relationship to my first viewing of For Your Eyes Only. Um, and the song again was another of these Bond songs that sort of is a was a big hit in its own right. It was one of the Oscar nominated Bond songs. It's a very sort of it was a very popular song in 1981. And so when that song kicks in in the film, I just sort of sit back for sort of three minutes and say, "Sing to me, 007, sing to me." Well, yeah, I mean it's interesting the music video thing because I was thinking about MTV and Video Killed the Radio Star and the first video in 1981 and the importance of of the music video and the star my only notes on it are it's too watery i.e it's just just watery um i think it actually i've put it works better without the singer though i i see what you mean but i've put it works better without the singer and so feels like die another day where you've got madonna in a cameo i'm like i don't want the singer to be in the i want the singer to sing the song invisibly i don't want to i don't want that to be broke that illusion to be broken um but my final note it like it it looks like you're looking through it through like your nan's front door because it's all a bit ripply. And so the glass is a little bit ripply and you're like, what's going on in this? So yeah, I mean, it's, it's not, I think it's one of my, just looking at my, my uh, individual rankings. I think it's my lowest. No, it's a lot of the more, it's interesting. We've done a lot of the recent ones first. It's almost as if the early ones are slightly more successful. I've certainly got um, Fiore's only living daylights um, Spy Love Me, License to Kill Man with the Golden Gun. So it's by, it, and then Moon, Spectre and Moonraker. So a, a lot of the later more ones are quite low down. Um, and I don't know what that kind of says, apart from apart from Octopussy, as you know, and View to a Girl, which are works of art. Um, but yeah, uh, it's it's. I think it's just not very memorable. And the thing I remember about it are the things I don't like about it, i.e. Sheena Easton's presence for the whole thing, the fact that it, it feels like an identikit collage of previous more title sequences, uh, and the fact they went, well, we've got bits that happen underwater, so we should probably we should probably make make him underwater. And then they do that, and I'm not not entirely not entirely convinced. I'm not entirely on board with it, but there we go. Anyway, what's next? What's next? What's next, Chris? What's next? Well, we've still got twelve James Bond opening title sequences to rank. Chris, Ed and I have been given a license to, well, talk endlessly about these movies, so we chose to do it in two parts. Join us in the next part where we reveal our number one choice. Um, But for now, you can follow us, of course, on all our social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Reddit and Instagram, at FanAnimResearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research, as well as you can contact us at fantasy-animation.org. Do you have a favourite opening title sequence? Let us know what it is and take part in the conversations, and then we'll see you in the next part of the episode.